It's good to be back. Nancy and I, um, while you're finding Acts 14, I'll tell you just a little bit about this whirlwind trip that we got back from um, that covered pretty much the whole United States. And there's really, if you just want the stats, you know, right down to the bottom line, here they are. We were gone 44 days, the total, covered 9,700 miles, 25 states, in an RV that's about 50 square feet. <laughs> and we still love each other. So we appreciate your prayers. <laughs> I mean, there were moments, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, so the other, the other thing I think that is, is maybe worthwhile about the mention other than, you know, um, all the places that we went and things is that one of the things we wanted to see was go to see the, the, the famous re, you know, uh, re, reputed colors of Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine, you know, in the fall. So we went up through there. I mean, that's just one of the places we went. But an interesting thing um, that we kind of stumbled over is the very last day uh, we spent, very last night, I should say, we spent in Reedsport over here on the coast, about 150 miles from here, and um, uh, or maybe a little more. But But we drove back on our final day, down along Highway 38, I imagine a lot of you have probably been on Highway 38, along the Umpqua River, the trees were golden, you know, yellow, and the sunlight was dappling through like that, and there was a slight mist on the river. And I want to tell you, folks, um, that was the most beautiful things we saw. We took more pictures in that stretch of road than we did anywhere. So if you are thinking that sometimes you'd like to take in the colors, go on the trip and all that stuff, but on the other hand, you just kind of like to cut to the chase, see me afterwards, I might be able to save you about 9,550 miles. Um, what we're picking up today is kind of the tail end, if you will, of the of Paul's first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas. It's been about a two-year trip, and if, if this was a slideshow of the missionary trip that Dr. Luke is giving us here in, in Acts chapter 14, where we pick up here in a minute, it would be the end of the slideshow. And like slideshows go, right? I mean, it kind of not only just kind of run out of slides, but you kind of review the trip kind of all together, you know, and you, and you talk a little bit about the beginning and the end and how everything kind of fit together. And it's more than just a travelogue about when and where and who they preached to and the response they got and the opposition and all that thing. But one of the things very clear about this passage we're going to look at is that the ministry that they engaged in on this first trip that lasted two years covered some 1,400 miles, both by ocean and by land, is the fact that it was an effective ministry. There were gospel results from this gospel ministry because as, as, as Paul and Barnabas went through and then they came back through, everything that churches needed to form and to grow, they left. They provided all of those things. And if you're like me, you know, if you've been reading through um, Acts and listening to the sermons about all of the kind of marvelous things that, that Paul and Barnabas did, the places that they visited and the the incredible events and experiences they have, that you you look at this and and you go, well, you know, that's just not me. 
I mean, that, that doesn't happen with me. And so all of a sudden what happens is this becomes kind of a black and white movie about somebody else. But I want to tell you this morning that, that the principles of grace in this story are applicable for gospel ministry in your neighborhood and to your next door neighbor and right in your little world as much as they are in first century Asia Minor. Now, the other thing that I think when we read a story like this, again, if you're like me, because of the hardships that they traveled, the, the, the places that they went, the things that they encountered, their endurance, their opposition, the injuries they suffered, their perseverance, and all of those things, it's tempting, isn't it, to look at Paul and Barnabas and go, wow, those guys are like superheroes. This, they're just like way out there. But we need to remember before we lock and load on this story, that Jesus is the only hero in the Bible. Jesus is the seeker. He's the one who came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus is the sender. If we remember back in Acts chapter 13, the beginning of this whole thing was the Holy Spirit of Jesus said, separate for me, Saul and Barnabas, for the work I've called them to. So Jesus is the sender. And we're going to find out today that Jesus is also the enabler. The other thing I think about this, since we look at this today, and what we're going to see is an effective gospel ministry, is that I believe that every Christian wants to have one, an effective gospel ministry. And I think every Christian knows that we should have one. I think the story today will show us that every Christian can have one. I want you to look, if you will, since you've found Acts chapter 14, down to the 26th verse. That's not where we're going to, that's not where our passage begins. I just want to kind of draw a circle around this for a minute. It says, from there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. The basis of everything I'm going to say today, the basis of everything that has to do with this trip, all the results, all the things, everything has to do with the fact that Paul and Barnabas were commended, that is, given over to, put under the charge of, put under the care of, uh, enlisted to the service of the grace of God. The grace of God is what this is all about. And so if you want something to write down and take home uh, about this passage, just kind of a summary statement, here it is. Effective ministry comes from grace dependency. Effective ministry comes only from grace dependency. Now, when we think about grace, I think our minds go normally just kind of to one kind of area. And, and, and that's, that's this aspect of grace. In Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it says, For it is by grace that you have been saved, by God's unmerited favor. Sometimes it, we refer to it that way, and it is. And other times we'll refer to it as God's riches at Christ's expense. And it's that too. But we, we tend to think of grace as that thing which brings us 
by God's unmerited favor into relationship with Lord Jesus Christ. But I would like for us to look over in Titus, Titus 2, about another dimension of grace that I think we're going to see operative today in our passage. For those of you that are following along in your Bibles, it'll be Titus 2.11. So, Paul tells us in Titus uh, 2.11 that the grace that we're going to talk about is the same grace that brings salvation. As a matter of fact, that's how the verse starts. It says in in Titus 2.11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. So that's the grace we're talking about. The grace that brings us to the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace that saves us. But he goes on to say in verse 12, but that same grace instructs us to deny ungodliness. And if we look down in verse 13, it says that that same grace causes us to look for the blessed hope and the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 14, that same grace is the grace that comes to us through Jesus Christ. Look at the the middle part of verse 14, to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So I would like to ask us to add a dimension today that is not new, but it's just something I think that we don't think about. And this is the definition I'd like for us to kind of hang our our, our time together today on. That God's grace gives us the desire and the power to do His will. God's grace gives us the desire and the power to do His good will. Titus says, a people for His own possession, zealous for good works. And it's the same grace that comes with salvation. I think that Paul and Barnabas, and for that matter, the whole church at Antioch, realized that whatever God was calling them to was way beyond them. And I think that we need to realize that any ministry that we do or God does through us is way beyond our pay grade. We're called to do things that we can't do. Paul and Barnabas were set apart by the Holy Spirit to go to a place that they didn't know, that they were unfamiliar with, with people that were out there that that they probably didn't even know were there with a message of the gospel. And we, you and me, are just like them in the sense that we have been given a great commission to go into all the earth and make disciples of men. Well, good luck with that on our own. We need, just like they did, God's God's grace. And I think that's why if we look back and 13.3, I'll just remind you that when Paul and, and, and Barnabas were commended to the grace of God, they were consciously, deliberately set apart, prayed for, and set out and commended to the grace of God. It says that the church there prayed with them and they laid hands on them. And that's described as commending. And as I said before, to get our heads around this word committing means to give over to, to commit to. Grace is not an assist. Grace is not something that assists us. Grace is something that totally empowers us. 
So where do we see grace dependency in this story? If you'll look to uh, Acts chapter 14, again in verse 19 and 20, we're going to kind of pick up where Pastor Brent left off. Acts chapter 14 and verse 19. This is a, a, a baffling two verses here, okay? Baffling. The Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Now, this is the baffling part. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. And the next day, he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. That's baffling. There's a lot written about whether Paul was actually dead or not. And I don't know that it really matters. The Jews thought he was. That was the whole point of stoning was because of the gospel message that he preached, they considered it blasphemous and they stoned him. And you stop stoning when the person's dead. And the interesting thing about this is this is such a naked expression. It just says that he got up and went into the city. It doesn't say what he did when he got into the city. It doesn't say what the results were of him going into the city. It just said he just left the next day. So we're left to kind of speculate about what might have happened. And I don't want to do that, really. Well, a little bit. But but the main thing that we can glean from this, and I think maybe that's the reason that there is only just the one statement about it, and there's not a lot of fill-in around it, is that we're to notice one thing. And that is that Paul had a disregard for his own well-being. Personal expendability. He was personally expendable in the ministry that God given him. That's a grace thing to give up ourselves. You know, I don't think it was just bulldog determination or just, you know, that he was going to let the Jews not have the last word or that he was just stupid. And we can only imagine what he looked like if he was bruised and bloody. I'm kind of thinking he was. But one thing that we can say for sure is that he went back into that city without regard or without primary regard for his personal safety. These are people who just stoned him. And he walked back in. You see, grace, God's grace, this grace that Paul was commended to, awakens us to a love that's greater than self. And it leads to personal expendability. This, you know, folks, this is where the grace of God touches our lives. And it's, a, it's the grace of God in a place that kind of pokes us where we don't like to be poked. But that's the kind of grace we're talking about. Is the grace that leads us to personal expendability. You know, Oswald Chambers, there's a lot of definitions about sin, and we think sin is when we do this or we do that and all that kind of thing. But I, but I, but I, I like the way that kind of Oswald Chambers has kind of pressed this all together and shaken it down and, and given us this idea. He says, sin... It's when we claim our right to ourselves. 
when I claim my right to myself. And here Paul is yielding that right by the grace of God. Sin no longer, the Bible says, will be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. Under grace. No longer a slave to sin, no longer a slave to self. You know, uh, Nancy and I visited when we were back uh, in, in Pennsylvania, uh, Antietam, the site of the Civil War battle. And it wasn't long um, after that, because Lincoln really needed a victory, apparently, for some kind of political reasons, but anyway, that he made the Emancipation Proclamation, that slaves were free. It really didn't change much, because slaves in the South particularly, didn't know how to be free. They didn't know what it meant to be free. They didn't know what it was like to be self-determinative. What it was like to live in freedom. And I think oftentimes, we as Christians are the same way. We've been given grace that sets us free from ourselves, free from our own agendas, free from our own things to serve the living God. That's His grace. That's His power at work in us. On October 28, 1949, having left his wife and young baby behind on a ship bound for the jungles of Ecuador where he would later be martyred by the Aka Indians that he was going to reach with the gospel. Jim Elliott wrote these words in his memoirs, and I know many of you have heard it, but they are so appropriate to this topic of personal expendability. I want to read them to you again. This is a man that was on a ship on the way, left his wife and baby behind, and he wrote this. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He's no fool to give up his life, which he can't keep. Jesus said whoever will wants to keep his life is going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel shall gain it. I don't know what losing your life looks like to you. Maybe it might mean friends. It might mean possessions. A reputation of giving up the right to yourself. But God's empowering grace that Paul was commended to was what allowed him to walk back into that city. Look in verse 21 through 23. The other way that we see God's grace at work in, in this ministry that was effective is that there was undiminished zeal. Verse 21, after they had preached the gospel to that city, that is Derby, and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch and strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So after they'd preached the gospel in Derby, they went on. It's like, Paul, don't you get it? 
You've just been stoned. It's time to pack it in. It's time to go home. And if we were to look at the geography of their journey, we'd see that they sailed across to Asia Minor and Perga and put in, and they went up through Pisidian, Antioch, and Iconium, and Lystra, and Derby, way out into the plains, all through the mountains and way out here. So this is where this is now. It's three-quarters of the way around the circle. And by the way, it's only 150 miles from Paul's hometown. He could have just gone, gone home. Time to... Time for some R&R, Paul. Time to, I mean, you've done it. I mean, right? I mean, you've preached. There's been converts. There's, uh, you know, the, the, the mission has been successful. Let's pack it in. Besides, you've been stoned, <laughs> right? What don't you get about this? But what Paul does on this three-quarters of the way around journey is reverse course and go right back the way that he came, visiting all of the churches. He took the long way home. He did that because of his undiminished zeal. You see, the things that happened to him, the opposition that they incurred, the stoning, the rejection of the Jews and the Gentiles and everybody was not what determined his course. He had an undiminished zeal. That's the grace of God. That's the grace of God. And Paul Paul knew that well. He was well, of his, well aware of his weaknesses and his dependence on God's grace. And he said in 2 Corinthians 4, We have this treasure that is the gospel in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. By God's grace, despite the opposition being stoned, Paul's zeal was undiminished. Now, one of the other things that happened on our trip, you knew you were going to get more about the trip, right? (laughs) It just had to happen. We were able to go visit the Creation Museum in the Ark down in in Kentucky, and it's uh, quite a thing to see. But, the thing that struck us about that was that Ken Ham, who kind of heads up that ministry, well, he doesn't kind of, he does head up that ministry and has for years. Nancy and I were able to see him speak at, at the Creation Museum. Now, the, the last time that we'd seen Ken Ham speak was 27 years before that at, uh, at our church in, in Hillsboro. 27 years. And you know what? He gave the same talk. But you know what else? Nancy and I were close enough to where we could see what was going on. The, the passion in this guy's voice. The, the enthusiasm. Because his, his whole ministry has been about the, the literal interpretation of the first 11 chapters of Genesis, particularly Noah's flood. And, and this guy was standing up on his toes and leaning into it, saying the same thing he'd been saying for 27 years. Now, I don't know what all's happened in Ken Ham's life in 27 years, but I'm sure that he has encountered discouragement. I'm sure that he has encountered difficulty. I know he gets laughed at. Go look at his website. But his zeal is undiminished. That's the grace of God. 
That's how it operated in Paul. That's how it operates in us. Speaking of standing on your toes, two years ago this Christmas, Nancy and I were at a fundraiser in Portland, and the uh, featured speaker was Luis Palau. Luis had just flown in from New York, and uh, he thought he was coughing a lot. He thought he was suffering from cold. We found out a few days later that he had lung cancer. And he was given it from two to six months to live. That was two years ago. March of this year, um, as three pastors were able to go to a, 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 a pastor seminar put on by a church in Portland, and Luis was the speaker. There's only three steps up to the podium, but he was so weak that he had to be helped up the steps. And when he began to preach, his voice was weak. He was leaning down. But as he continued to preach, he straightened up. His legs got stiff. His voice got strong. And I noticed, like I said, speaking of toes, he was leaning forward. This is 84, I think. Gail isn't Luis 84, something like that. Mid-80s. Man, that's supposed to have been dead a year and a half ago with lung cancer, and he was standing, no kidding, on one foot on his toes. Why? Because he was... All the things that he's encountered, the health challenges, everything, his zeal for his ministry was undiminished. That's the grace of God. And look right here at these two people, John and Donna. Now, we don't have to really look at it. <laughs> but just consider them. I mean, 28 years of the ministry in China, and even though health challenges forced them to come back to the United States, if you want to see them light up like a Christmas tree, just just mention Chinese missions or reaching a Chinese people, and they, why? They have an undiminished zeal because of the grace of God. So verse 22 says that the way that they went about this was they went back through the churches, encouraging them and giving them this message. Here's a message of encouragement. Want to hear a message of encouragement? Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. That was the message. But it's an encouraging message. You see, the message of following Jesus Christ is not that it's easy or that if you do everything right, it's all going to work out okay and there's not going to be any rough spots and no trouble. That's not the message. The message is, it's difficult. But God grants the grace to do it. And knowing Jesus and serving Him and loving Him is worth it. That's the message. And that's encouraging. That's how they encourage the churches. Paul could say this. He could say, I count all things as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus. To know Him and the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His suffering, 
being conformed to his death. Those who suffer with Jesus know him intimately because that's where he is. That's what he did. He was the suffering Savior. And that's where we meet him in our ministries, his suffering. Well, they encourage with that encouraging message. Hope it encourages you. And the second thing that they did, and I want to spend a little bit of time on this, not a lot, but I got just a little bit, is they appointed elders in every city. That is, in every church, because there was one church in every city. And it says, when they had appointed elders in every city, that they moved on. It's kind of like they weren't going to move until this was done because it's important. Now, you know, the church leadership today just seems to be not a big deal about kind of who's flying the plane. But elders are important because seldom, if ever, can a people rise above the level of their leadership. But today, it's kind of like whoever's popular. It's who's gifted, who's accepted, who's admired. And none of these things matter, but who is qualified. And we have that in First Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And Paul was doing this by apostolic authority. But I want to just notice, just in passing, we don't have time to flesh this out at all, but just that, that there was a plurality of elders There was elders in every church that they appointed. And in fact, in every descriptive passage of eldership in the New Testament, it does talk about a plurality. It's not elder, it's elders. Why do we have a plurality of elders at the door? It's not just a personal preference. It's a biblical model. It's not a single guy. And I know a lot of men that are the kind of the, the senior pastor types at, at their church, and they do a wonderful ministry, and, and God uses them in a great way. But I think, but I think that it's, it's often in spite of the fact that they're alone and not because of it. And the other thing is, there's a plurality of co-equal elders not just one big elder and a bunch of little elders, but co-equal elders that share according to their roles and their giftedness. Now, that doesn't mean everybody has to do everything because we do recognize giftedness and and um, the situation is kind of subject to each group. But, but here, here's, I guess, is the big thing, is that with a plurality of elders, each elder is subject to all the rest of the elders. I've put it this way before. I hope it's helpful. You have four pastor elders. I have three. You have four. The four of us pastors, and I have three that I'm subject to just like you are. Important thing. Verse 23 through 27, I just want you to notice, we don't have much time again. I, I want to wrap this up. But, but, but God's grace is focused on the local church. God puts his enabling power to his priorities. 
If we could look through this Torah, if we had time, we'd see how much grace was directed towards the churches and how much grace, grace flowed through the churches. There was the sending church at Antioch, Syria. There was the preaching to the churches and strengthening and encouraging and organizing in the churches at Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, uh, Pisidian Antioch. And then, and then Paul and Barnabas went back again to the church at Antioch and Syria, reporting and spending, it says, a great deal of time with them. The local church is a priority. If anybody had free agency status with respect to the church, it would have been the Apostle Paul, right? I mean, he received on the Damascus Road a direct commission from Jesus to go to the Gentiles, to go bear his testimony before kings and so forth and so on. Paul could have just said, hey, you know, I've got, I've got a direct line here. But you know, it's interesting, even though he received that commission from Jesus, he was actually sent out, commended to the grace by a local church. Jesus conducted all of his public ministry in community. And it was that church that Jesus said that the gates of hell won't prevail against. And I hear people say all the time, oh, well, Jesus is talking about the universal church. That's probably true. But the universal church is made up of individual local churches. And the last thing I want to look at is in verse 27. That a grace-dependent ministry gives God all the glory. All the glory. Look here in verse 27. It says, When they had arrived, that is Paul and Barnabas, arrived together, they gathered the church together. This is in Antioch from where they'd been sent out. And they began to report all the things that God had done with them and how he had opened, how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. God had done it. All the things that they had done, God did. And they gave him the glory for it. And how he opened a door to the Gentiles. And we'll talk about that in just a second. But it's all God's work. It's all by God's grace. It's all by God's power. When it says, I guess the most surprising thing here and the most thing that we should, we should take, a, take note of is that God opened a door to the Gentiles. And it's hard for us to, to get our heads around what a dramatic message this was, that God had opened a door to the Gentiles. Because we don't live in that Jew Gentile tension. But there was nothing that divided the ancient world, at least this part of the ancient world, any more than either being a Jew or Gentile. And what Paul and Barnabas come back saying is that, hey, you know what, guys? God opened a door for the Gentiles to believe just like us Jews. That means from stem to stern, from top to bottom, from north to south, it's the same. You know, the Jews knew a lot, for the most part, about God. The Gentiles didn't know hardly anything. The Jews had a religious heritage, you know, with Abraham and all the rest. And the Jews were just agnostic pagans, for the most part. 
the Jews even sacrificed to the one true God. And the Gentiles sacrificed to idols. But both were being saved by believing the same message because God had opened the door of faith. So what does that mean to you today? Well, in here, like the Jews and the Gentiles, I suppose there are people who are very religious and some that are irreligious. There's some who are knowledgeable of the Bible and some who don't know much at all. And there's some in here that probably feel like the Jews did oftentimes, pretty self-righteous. And there's others in here that probably feel the isolation of God's condemnation. But you know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where you are, where you fit on that spectrum, on that continuum, because God has opened a door. And that door is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we walk through that door by faith. We can enter into relationship with God through Him, regardless of who you are. As one man said, the ground really is level at the cross. So, what are we to do with what we have heard about this message and dependence on grace? I think first, we need to admit that we are dependent on God's grace and to understand that our weakness is not a hindrance to God's grace, but it's the very arena in which it operates. My grace, Paul said, about what God told him, my grace, God's grace to Paul is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, Paul said, therefore I will rather boast in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. You know, the task that God has given us of reaching the world or anybody with the gospel is beyond us. And the only way that it can happen is as we rely totally on God's grace. So don't ignore the task. Don't shy away from it because it's immense and it's unreachable and it's out there too far. But let the impossibility of the work drive us to dependence on God's grace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your abundant grace that is able to do in us, Lord, and through us, able to give us desire where we don't have it, able to give us power, Lord, where we lack it, and to do the work that you want to do, Lord, for your glory. Thank you for this story. Lord, help us to consciously commend ourselves, Lord, and be commended by one another, Father, to your grace. And look to you, Lord, for for what only you can do. And we'll give you thanks for that in Jesus' name. Amen.